The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you all. I'm excited for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I got to say, we had some good worship when I was here, uh, but nothing like that. That was, praise the Lord, that was amazing. So I am also excited to be opening God's Word with you. If you have your Bible with you, why don't you open it to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Uh, well, as Adam said, he called me an associate pastor. That is pending. There's a vote on November 10th, so you all can pray for me for that. Uh, I'm currently the assistant pastor, and with that, I carry about 30% of the preaching load there. And one of the challenges of doing that, not preaching every week, uh, that I've found is that while people will remember the lessons from your sermons, you can't really expect them to remember like the narrative flow of the story or maybe something like the, Paul's argument in the, the book of Romans. Uh, so I was wondering, what am I going to preach on? And I've been working my way through the Sermon on the Mount because there's those nice little sections that can kind of stand on their own. But as I've been making my way through, it has recurred to me time and time again a lesson that was really hammered into me during my time here at Cairn, and that is context is king. So while those section headings in the Sermon on the Mount do divide the text up into nice, manageable, sermon-sized chunks, we have to remember that Jesus delivered this sermon all together, and the original hearers got it section after section in a single sitting. And if we then rip them out of context, it can have disastrous effects. You take, for example, in chapter 7, the section that begins before our text today in verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Rip that out of context and it becomes a favorite for prosperity preachers. But in context, the hearers of this sermon have just heard Jesus say that his kingdom requires a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus lays out the ethical demands of his kingdom. And an honest listener or reader must admit that they fall so far short of these righteous demands. And just when you begin to wonder who then could possibly be saved, who could ever enter this kingdom, that is when Jesus gives the soothing balm for the soul that has come to the end of itself. Ask, and it will be given to you, because your Father delights to give such good gifts to those who ask him. Taken out of context, this leads us to wrong ideas about God, about faith, and about prayer. And in a similar way, our text today, if we were to rip it from context, could lead us to forget God altogether or to misunderstand the gospel through which we are saved. And so now that I've said that, I'm going to actually have to ask you to turn back a page in your Bible to Matthew 5:17, so we can get some context. And we're going to read Matthew 5:17 through 20, and then we will be ready to flip over to chapter 7, verse 12. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, this is God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, chapter 7, verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Amen. Praise God for his word. Now, my hope is that by reading from Matthew 5, 17 and then coming to 7, 12, you're going to see that these actually form the bookends on the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then from 5, 21 through 7, 11, Jesus gives specific applications of how the law and the prophets are fulfilled in his kingdom. It's not in an idealistic, utopian future, but what kingdom life is to look like here and now for disciples living in a fallen world. And then you get 7.12, which tells us that the law and the prophets are summed up in the phrase, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And that sounds so simple, doesn't it? It sounds like it's just basic decency. I mean, we give this rule to children with the expectation that they will understand. But Jesus says this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this summarizes the entire Old Testament's teaching on neighbor love. Elsewhere in, in uh, Matthew 22, 39 through 40, and in Romans 13, 8 through 10, it's the same idea phrased a little differently. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that sounds so simple. But we all fail to do this. My reaction to the person who cuts me off on the road, or the one who is driving under the speed limit, is not in keeping with this rule. And so it is that my own conscience convicts me that I am guilty of the law. What I in one moment think is a basic rule for children, in the very next moment I realize I do not keep. Now to move into the main body, I want to organize the rest of our time under these three headings. First, misquoting and missing God. Second, not the gospel. And third, gospel imperative. First heading is misquoting and missing God. And the golden rule is among the most well-known of Jesus' teachings. It's the kind of teaching that appeals to almost everyone. It's why Jesus is considered to be a great moral teacher by many non-Christians. You'll be hard-pressed to find someone who's not heard of the golden rule and even harder-pressed to find someone who's against it. If you ask most people what the golden rule is, they'll say something along the lines of, do to others what you want them to do to you, maybe with minor variances based on different Bible translations. Now, it may sound like I'm nitpicking, but that isn't quite what Jesus said, is it? 
What he actually said was, so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And what happens is if this rule is pulled out of context, and when that happens, it loses the foundation of its meaning. During my time here as a student around 2007 to 2010, uh, my wife and I used to have this Jehovah's Witness named Nick who would come by, and I would invite him in and open the scriptures with him. We would sometimes be discussing the Bible or theology for a couple of hours. We even got to the point where we would select topics ahead of time to discuss. But one time in the fall of 2008, he stopped by unannounced, and I had to apologize that I, I couldn't talk right then because I was facing a deadline for a paper on St. Augustine for my literature and arts class. Now, he'd never heard of Augustine, but a week later, there was a packet of paper left in my door, and it was the Watchtower's approved teaching on Augustine. And so I start reading through it, and it actually quoted from a book I had read. And the quote starts, and then there's this ellipsis, dot, 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 and it finishes the rest of the quote. Well, it sounded a little bit odd, so I went to my book, and that ellipsis had stood in the place of multiple paragraphs. It completely lifted the quote from its context, and so it had lost all foundation for its meaning. A much shorter example, I'm sorry, but I don't like the Celtics. I think they're a bunch of crybabies. But that can become, I don't like dot, 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 babies. And the headline reads, local pastor doesn't like babies. See, context provides the foundation for meaning. And so what's the big deal if we kind of just put an ellipsis in place of that so, and in place of the for, this is the law and the prophets? It's a rather subtle change, but unintentionally, we can remove God from the golden rule. Without even thinking, we can take what Jesus describes as a summary of the Old Testament and turn it into a rule for good little girls and boys with no reference to God at all. And we exchange the foundation of the unchanging word of God for the variable foundation of human social ethics. In fact, some form of this golden rule has been a part of the teachings of many religions and philosophers, including Thales and Confucius, dating back to 500 BC. And it often occurs in the negative form. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. And the difference is tremendous. I don't want you to punch me in the nose. So I won't punch you in the nose. And now I'm a good and moral person. I don't want you to take my wallet, so I'm not going to take your wallet. And now I'm a good and moral person. In this form, there's no positive action required. I can completely retreat from society and live a morally pure life. But when we put the golden rule back into context, we see something quite different and significantly more demanding. That word so can also be translated therefore. It's a joining word. It indicates that what follows is connected with what was already said. And we've already mentioned the relation to the entirety of Matthew 5, 21 through 7, 11, but there's also the relationship with the immediately preceding paragraph. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? 
So since your Father in heaven generously gives good things to evil people like you and me, since you have been received the unmerited grace of God, then you must also be generous. You must also be gracious. You must do to others what you would wish others would do to you. And not because it works. This is not utilitarian advice, but because it is the law and the prophets, because it fulfills God's commands in the Old Testament, because it is a summary of the exceeding righteousness which Jesus says is required to enter his kingdom. And the demands are exceedingly great. There is no retreating from society to do nothing permitted here. What is required is a deliberate and active love towards our neighbor. Notice, Jesus uses no fine print. There's no disclaimers. There are no limits. There's no limit to our love and service to others based on what they have done to us. That is irrelevant. We are to do for them what we would desire them to do for us. Jesus does not limit the extent of this love or the quantity of things that we would do for others. Whatever you wish others would do is literally everything whatsoever you would desire. And he doesn't limit the who either. He doesn't say whatever you wish your friends would do or those who believe like you or those who look like you or think like you or vote like you. It's simply others. Everyone you encounter, whatever you would desire, they would do to you, do also to them. So remove gone from the picture and you can have a pragmatic ethical maxim. People are more likely to be kind to you if you are kind to them. Remove God or take the negative form and you have sound advice that may result in some moral improvement. But if we are to take what Jesus says seriously then we must have God. I read a peer-reviewed secular philosophy paper on the Golden Rule, and the author cited William James, the father of American psychology. He declared that the Golden Rule is incompatible with human nature. It routinely violates the basic structure of human embodiment, the laws of human motivation, and the principles of rational choice of behavior based on them. The author himself then said, we cannot feasibly love on demand either in our heart or actions. Can we even learn to love others as ourselves over a lifetime? In other words, serious secular thinkers recognize that Jesus' demands are beyond us. You and I are sufficiently self-focused that we must have God's unmerited grace as a motivator and as empowerment if we are to begin to do for others what we would desire they do for us. Brings us to the second heading, not the gospel. The golden rule is not the gospel. It is the summary of, of the Bible's teaching and God's standards for how we are to love our neighbor, but it's not the gospel. It's not the way that you are saved from your sins. It's not how you become a Christian. It's not how you get into heaven. But it is often treated that way. 
may encounter someone who believes that in the end they will go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person and I try to live by the golden rule. But that's not the gospel. It's not the way of salvation. Theological liberalism may put forward that the golden rule is the essence of Christianity, but that would force us to conclude that Confucius and Thales had the essence of Christianity, and that you can have the essence of Christianity without God, without Christ, and without the cross. That cannot be the gospel. Commentator Matthew Henry says, either this rule is not the gospel or we are not Christians. What he means is that the gospel is the standard by which we would know if we are Christians. And if the golden rule is the standard, then we are not Christians because we do not keep it and we do not meet the standard. And it is not good news because left to ourselves, we cannot keep it. The gospel is that God, the creator of all things and the giver of life, has created us in his image, and he initiated a relationship with us through covenant with Adam, where he promised eternal life for perfect obedience and threatened death for disobedience. Adam fell into sin by eating the forbidden fruit, and we have inherited from him a sinful nature and the guilt of that sinful nature, which separates us from God and renders us incapable of any saving good. This original sin, along with our actual sins, makes each and every one of us guilty before a holy God with no possibility of ever being good enough to pay for our sins. But God showed his great love for us in sending Jesus to die for our sins. He died the death that we deserved so that we could be raised to new life. And his resurrection three days later and his subsequent ascension to the right hand of God proves that his payment was accepted. And God has declared him to be king of kings and lord of lords. And now Jesus extends the free gift of salvation to everyone who repents and believes. Further, he's poured out his Holy Spirit as a deposit of our inheritance through whom we are progressively made more and more like Jesus and able to live a life that pleases God in accordance with his commands. That is the gospel. The golden rule is not the gospel. We are not saved by keeping the golden rule. But when we have turned to Christ in faith and repentance and by his grace we are saved, we are being conformed to the golden rule. And that brings us to the third heading, gospel imperative. Take note again of that word, so, and how it connects verse 12 with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So given the fact that you are salt and light, given that you have a Father in heaven who causes his Son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, who knows your needs before you ask and supplies them, who has forgiven your sin and safeguards your inheritance in heaven and who gives good gifts to undeserving sinners like you and me when they ask, even giving the righteousness required for his kingdom. In light of all of this, out of gratitude for such grace and love, you must love your neighbor as yourself. You must do to others as you would have them do to you. It is not the gospel The golden rule is an overflow of the gospel. Because of the gospel, because you have received the grace, mercy, and love of God, this is how you must live. It is a gospel imperative. 
Now, in earlier sections of the Sermon on the Mount, you see the commands and the standards that Jesus puts forward. And part of what those commands do, whether you have been a Christian for a long time or you are reading them for the first time, is they show you how far short you fall and they drive you to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. But they also show us the standard of righteousness to which God is constantly calling and leading the Christian throughout their life. Will we keep this standard perfectly? No. But that does not mean that we shouldn't desire to keep it, strive to keep it, and even see ourselves improving in the keeping of it. And we have the precious promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let's spend a few minutes now putting some flesh on how we are to carry out the golden rule in light of the gospel. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you. Now look at that and see. Do you see how much Jesus knows us? He knows that we are inclined to self-centeredness. He knows that we actually spend time thinking about how we want other people to treat us or how we wish that they had not. I, I wish that my friends would really listen to me. I wish that I was appreciated at work. I wish that person hadn't treated me in that way. And so Jesus says, all that time and all that energy that you're spending thinking about yourself, use some of that time to consider how your desires for self should inform the way that you treat others. Harness your desire for self-interest to actively love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also says that this is the law and the prophets. And as we said, this means that this command summarizes the Old Testament's teaching on love for neighbor. But you may have noticed this morning that your Bible still has the Old Testament attached to it. And that's not just to keep you you know, if you get bored, you can read it. It's actually going to keep you from misapplying the golden rule. That whatever you wish is unlimited in extent, but it's certainly limited to those things which do not conflict with the will of God. Now, I desire that others would support me in my endeavors, but that does not mean that I need to support a friend who desires to rob a bank. Further, love of neighbor is the idea here being taught. And love, says 1 Corinthians 13, does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish. It is others-focused. So if I have a desire to receive some cordless power tools for Christmas this year, the golden rule is not telling me to buy my wife and my kids cordless power tools for Christmas this year. But it's actually that very kind of situation that caused George Bernard Shaw to criticize the golden rule. He said, do not do to others what you would want them to do for you, their tastes may be different. In other words, that may not be how they want to be treated. Now, a man named Dave Kirpin said of the Golden Rule, it's a splendid concept except for one thing. Everyone is different, and the truth is that in many cases, what you would want done to you is different from what your partner, employee, customer, investor, wife or child may want done to him or her. So he coined the term the Platinum Rule, do to others as they would want done to them. Now, I will be straight with you and acknowledge that I have a bias towards Jesus over Dave. 
but is there a hole in Jesus' teaching? Well, actually, it doesn't take any kind of theological gymnastics to sort this situation out. Just one question. Do I desire that others would treat me in the way that I want to be treated? If so, then the golden rule says that I should treat others in the way that they want to be treated. And Jesus' teaching has the benefit of being in the context of the law and the prophets and the gospel. And so it has a foundation to deal with difficult situations like a drug addict who wants me to feed their addiction or like a criminal in court who does not want the judge to send them to jail. And we can handle these difficult situations with love and justice as we unselfishly seek what is best for our neighbor within the will of God. And perhaps an obvious application for all of us is that we are now entering a presidential election cycle. And no matter what you think of the current state of our government, we should recognize that change, even desired change, is hard for people to deal with. Even desired change can produce feelings of fear and loss. And though there are only a few possible candidates from which we may choose, even within this room, those choices will be arrived at by as many opinions and perspectives as there are people in this room. And that's okay. Because the beauty of the church, it's not its uniformity. It is its unity within diversity. On my desk in my office, I have a paperweight that just says, pray first. So I want to encourage you to pray first. Not only in your political discussions, but in your personal interactions in general. Pray for wisdom. Pray for unity within the body of Christ. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help us all apply the golden rule. If you want others to hear your voice, the golden rule says, listen. If you want others to assume the best of your intentions, then the golden rule says, assume the best of their intentions. This is how we show love for our neighbor. And within the body of Christ... Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The clarity of our witness depends on it. So let that be evident among us. For the glory of Christ and for our joy, let us do to others as we would desire them to do for us. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and our text today, we recognize our need. And we plead for grace and for mercy. Fill us with your Spirit that we might be strengthened to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. Help us to love one another. Help us to love when it is difficult. Help us to love when we really feel the cost of love. We know this is only possible because you have first loved us. Shape us into the image of your Son, so that others may see and give glory to you. Father, I pray for these students here as they are now in the second half of their semester. Father, strengthen them and encourage them in their studies. Father, build them up in their faith. Strengthen their faith and their resolve in you. 
Let there be unity here in the campus and, and then be spurring one another on to love and to good works. For the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.